Let me restate the goal of this session. Session four, all 12, same goal. What if we could reveal the characters of Revelation so that if you read Revelation, you'd understand Revelation? What if we showed you the pieces, the building blocks of Revelation that bridge the material so that you could read it yourself and understand it and get the blessing? That's the goal. Uh, each session I give credit and thanks to Dr. David Jeremiah who wrote the book Agents of Apocalypse. Uh, I encourage you to get that book if you want to read more detail. The Revelation. Let's pray. Father, tonight I ask you the prayer I've asked on numerous occasions that you'd open our minds to understand the scripture. I know you can do that. I believe it's your will to do that. And I believe that as a follower of Christ, if I pray what is your will in the name of Jesus, you will do that. So tonight, open our minds to understand the scriptures, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first session was the church. He writes a letter to seven churches in Asia Minor. When the seven church letters are finished, he says, and after that, he said to me, come up here and I will show you what must soon, what must take place after that, after the churches. That led to the martyrs, the souls of those who had been martyred, I believe, during the tribulation under the altar of God. That led to last week's topic, the 144,000. I believe that after the rapture of the church, the tribulation will begin and many will be martyred for simply saying Jesus. Followed by the release of 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Tonight we study the two witnesses. I've told you a couple of occasions that three things will be working on the earth during the tribulation after the rapture. And here's why I make a point of this. How's anybody going to come to the come to Christ when the church is gone? How would you have come to Christ without the church? There are three things that will remain after the rapture. The Bible. I, I highly doubt the books are going up with us. The Bible. Videos, sermons. I've decided I'm going to leave all my material back here. It's here. The Word of God's here. It's, not, it, it's powerful. Just reading it turns your inside out. The second thing that'll be here after the rapture is last week, there's going to be 144,000 Jewish evangelists turned loose in the, on the earth. And there's one more, and tonight we'll tackle this one. Two guys. Doesn't seem like much when you look at the size of planet earth. Two guys called the two witnesses. The rapture will change the world in an instant. It won't be geographical, it'll be the entire planet. Why? Because the rapture will remove the church. And the church is the light of the world. And what do you think is going to happen when the light goes out? It's going to get dark. How long will it take for the dark to get dark? Instantaneously. Things will begin to change immediately when the church is taken out of the way. The church is the very presence of God. Now, let there be no mistake. When I use the word church, the church is the very presence of God. We are witnesses of God, the Father and Jesus, the Son, because the Holy Spirit dwells inside of the people called the church. It is not some clever comment that the church is the body of Christ and if the church is the body of Christ and Jesus is the head of the body and the church leaves it's going to get dark the church is the restrainer of evil because the church is the presence of God I want you to visualize that the church holds up the light and the light will always push away the darkness. There, there's lights in this room. There's lights over top of me. You turn out those lights, 
and the darkness will immediately come. It's the same concept with the church. The church is the light of the world, the restrainer of darkness, restrains. As light holds up, darkness stands at a distance. We are the presence of God, but one day the church will be taken out of the way, removed. And listen, Paul knew it. Jesus revealed to Paul personally. He got it firsthand from Christ. He wrote it down to a Gentile church in Thessalonica. He didn't just, the only thing he didn't know was when. He knew what was going to happen. He just didn't know when it was going to happen. In fact, if you read his writings, can I just say this? If you read his writings, he was hopeful that it would happen in his own lifetime. Can you imagine when he was in that Roman prison that he was hoping it would happen like any day? But it didn't. Second Thessalonians, here's what he wrote. Don't you remember that I told you about all this when I was with you? Now we're reading Second Thessalonians. If you'll know, do you know what's in First Thessalonians? The rapture of the church. It's in First Thessalonians. There'll be a loud shout, the trumpet blast, voice of the archangel, dead in Christ will rise. That's in First Thessalonians. But he says, don't you remember I told you about all this when I was with you? And you know what's holding him back. Now who are we talking about? We're talking about the Antichrist. He's a man. He's referred to, in just a second, as the man of lawlessness. You know what's holding him back, do you know? You are. You are. Jesus Christ is inside of you. He's inside of me. The Antichrist is darkness. He's lawlessness. He's against the laws of God. You know what's holding him back? For he, the Antichrist, can be revealed only when his time comes. For this lawlessness is already at work secretly. Now here's the point I want you to get. You can read over this and you're going to lose something. This lawlessness, he can't come until the one that's holding him back is taken out of the way. But notice what he said. This work of lawlessness, this secret lawlessness is already at work. It was at work in the time of the early church. It's at work today. It's secret. When the church is taken away, it won't be any secret anymore. He'll rise to power. For this lawlessness is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until what? Until the one who's holding it back is taken out of the way. I'm going to tell you, I am firmly convinced that that is the Holy Spirit-filled church of Jesus Christ. This is a description of the rapture of the church. So last week, I think I confused some people. I believe that the church will not know who the Antichrist is because of this sentence. Until the one who is taken out of the way is removed. Then, notice verse 8, then. Let me back up. Verse 7. For this lawlessness is, is it works secretly, and it will remain secret until the one who's holding it back steps out of the way. So I want you to visualize the church stepping off of the earth. Then. If you want to look at some other translations, and after that, the man of lawlessness will be revealed. So if you want to know why I don't think the church will know who the Antichrist is, it's because of the word then. The one is taken out of the way first. Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed. I don't plan on knowing who he is. But the Lord Jesus will kill him. When? I believe, chronologically speaking, some seven years later. It will kill him how and when? I believe it's seven years, roughly later. don't know exactly when he will come in that seven-year tribulation. I believe it's very... Uh, close to the rapture of the church. But when will Jesus kill him? He's going to kill him. Okay, is that your vision of Jesus? I tell you, he's not coming back as a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Did you just read that? Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed, but the Lord Jesus will kill him. How? With the breath of his mouth. And destroy him. How? You want to know the details? Here it comes. By the splendor of his arrival. 
by the splendor of his coming. By the what? Listen, what, what do you think? Glory and splendor. What, what? Light destroys darkness. His glory comes and the darkness of Satan cannot remain. He will be destroyed. You know what hell is? Darkness. The absolute absence of light. Spiritual lawlessness is already at work right now. Remember that as we move on. I want to give you a sequence of events as I read the Revelation, Thessalonians, New Testament, Paul's writings, Peter's writings. I believe the rapture of the church is the next thing on God's prophetic calendar. Followed by the revelation, the revealing of the Antichrist. Inside, seven years of tribulation. At the end of the seven years, Jesus comes back to Jerusalem to literally set up his kingdom on the throne of David, fulfilling Gabriel's promise to Mary. It will last a thousand years. At the end of that thousand years, Satan will be released for a season. Hang on, that's in future sessions. And at the end of that season, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And the dwelling place of God will be with man. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And everything will be made new. A new heaven and a new earth. Now go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This man, we're re again referring to the Antichrist, will come to do what? The work of Satan. How? With counterfeit power, counterfeit signs, and counterfeit miracles. Why, are they, why do they need to be counterfeit? Why don't he just go on and pull out the real stuff? He doesn't have it. He's not a creator. He is a created being. He is an angel. He had a birthday. God didn't. God has always been, always is, and always will be. Satan is a created being. He will need to use counterfeit signs and miracles because he is not a creator. He cannot make something from nothing. So he comes and he's going to inhabit, listen to me, a man. A man. A walking around man. Satan is a spirit. He is an angel. He will enter a man's body. Remember he entered Judas. And Judas betrayed the Christ. This one's going to enter a man. This man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit powers and signs and miracles. He will use every kind of, here it comes again, evil deception. Why do you got to deceive them? To fool those who are on their way to destruction because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. And I insert during the tribulation, even though it's really not any different than today. So God will cause them to be greatly deceived and they will believe these lies. Whose lies? The Antichrist's lies. Where is he getting the lies? He's getting them from Satan. They will be condemned. What happens if you believe the lies of the Antichrist? They will be condemned. Why? For enjoying evil rather than believing truth. Yes, the church will be taken, transported into the clouds to receive immortal flesh and move to heaven to experience the wedding supper of the Lamb. The church has given witness to the glory of God for some 2,000 years. 28 generations. You know, to me, 28 generations sounds a whole lot shorter than 2,000 years. I want you to visualize 28 families have gone in front of us. That's not so many people, is it? If you start using thousands, my brain shuts down. I can't, I can't get the depth. 
But if you take 70 years as an average lifespan of a generation and you multiply that times 28, you'll get about 2,000 or 1,960 years, which would be 28 families have gone in front of us. That's not so far. Many mess. Now, what I'm about to tell you right now is one of these. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> Many Messianic Jews, and I'm going to tell you, I only learned this in the last five, six years. One of them specifically, his name is Avi Mizrachi. I know him personally. Believe that the millennial reign of Christ, that's the 1,000 year reign of Christ that follows the tribulation will be, come on, here we go, the seventh 1,000-year period since creation. Now, I'm not validating this, but I find it to be an interesting concept, especially coming from Jewish people who believe Jesus is Messiah. Now, did I confuse you? Many of these people believe that that 1,000-year reign will be the seventh 1,000-year since creation. How long has it been? If you study the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, go down and do the, the, the genealogies and, and Adam begat somebody and you, know, and you add all those numbers up. How, how, we believe the earth, the present earth, is about 6,000 years old. Now these guys believe that in six days God created the heavens and the earth and on the seventh day he rested. That seventh day was the Sabbath and Jesus reigning in Jerusalem for a thousand years will be the Sabbath rest of planet Earth. Whoa, that's an interesting concept. The only problem is, I don't know when the 6,000's over. But it is interesting. Do you know that it's been 2,000 years? Read the Old Testament. There was 2,000 years between Adam and Abraham. Okay, thank you for that. But do you also know there were 2,000 years between Abraham and Jesus? Okay, that's a little more interesting. Do you also know that it's been 2,000 years from Jesus to us? Two, two, two is six. And what if when the 6,000th year on God's calendar, not Terry's, on God's calendar is up, the Sabbath will begin marked by the 1,000-year reign of Christ? Hmm, Interesting. Jesus told us to pray a prayer. I do. Exactly. Every day. And he told us to watch out and pray a prayer. Here it is, and this will be the foundation we start from. Jesus looks at believers and says, watch out. Don't let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness and by the worries of this life. And don't let that day catch you. What day? What day? I don't have to tell you, you know, your last day. Whether it's the trumpet blast or when you stop breathing, that'd be the last day for you. Don't let that day catch you unaware like a trap. Keep alert at all times. And pray. Pray what? I hope some of y'all memorize this. I challenge you to memorize this. Pray that you'd be strong enough to escape these coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. What coming horrors? Anybody see it? Why did he tell me to pray that I'd be, watch out, don't let that day catch me unaware like a trap. What day? The rapture of the church. Well, I don't want to miss that. I don't want to say the day after the rapture. I wish I'd been paying attention. Pray that you'd be strong enough to escape these coming horrors and what? Stand before the Son of Man. When you get raptured, where do you think you're going to go stand? The Bible, the Word, will remain after the rapture. And here's why. God never leaves himself without a witness. The 144,000 will be sealed and released upon the earth. As the seventh seal, I talked about it last week, is open. But there's one more thing that will give witness to the glory of God during the tribulation. They are called the two witnesses, and I believe they will arrive near the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. 
in the absence of the church. Let's see what the Revelation tells us about these two witnesses. Here we go. Revelation session 4, the two witnesses. Revelation 11, verse 3. And I will give power to my two witnesses. And they will be clothed in burlap and will prophesy during those 1260 days. Notice he says, my. (laughs) They belong to God. My witnesses. God never leaves himself without a witness. Are you a witness? I'm a witness. I can tell you what he's done. I got a testimony. I got a witness to my testimony. Clothed in burlap. Why? Do you notice it? Because they stand in the midst of the great tribulation, which is unlike any time that's ever been on the earth. You remember what Jesus said? These days will be so bad, unlike any other time. And there's been some dark times on earth, right? He says that if these days were not cut short, no human life would survive. That's why they're in burlap, a symbol of mourning and distress. These two men will prophesy for 1260 days. How long is that? That's three and a half years. And yes, I believe it will be the first three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. Some have suggested that these two witnesses are symbols of the Old and the New Testament, that it's not literally two guys. I respectfully disagree. I believe they are real people. They are real prophets, real preachers in the middle of a real tribulation. That it is not figurative language, it is literal language. They will speak and perform great miracles and then they will die. Just like real people die. The next verse in the Revelation describes them as two olive trees and two lampstands. And I will admit to many, including me, this is a tough one. They are referred to as two olive trees. These two guys are two olive trees and two lampstands. So we go, let me read that first, verse 4. These two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. That would make you a good witness, right? If you're the tree in front of the Lord and you're the lamp in front of the Lord, symbolically speaking. So where might you find this same language about lampstands and olive trees? Let's go to the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament. The timing is about 520 years B.C., and Zechariah has a vision. He has a vision of God. He's going to write it down. Zechariah 4.1. Then the angel who had been talking with me returned and woke me as though I had been asleep. What do you see now? The angel asked. I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl of oil on top of it. Around the bowl are seven lamps, each having seven spouts with wicks. And I see two olive trees, one on each side of the bowl. Zechariah saw, there's a part of this that's unique. Did you catch it? One lampstand, not two. But he sees two olive trees, but he didn't know what it meant. Let's keep going. Go down to verse 11. Then I, Zechariah, asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on each side of the lampstand? And what are the two olive branches that pour out golden oil through these two gold tubes? Don't you know? The angel. How would you like to give him one of these tests and the angel looks at you after letting you see something spectacular and saying, don't you know? You don't get it? I don't get it. Zachariah didn't get it. Don't you know? He asked. No, my Lord, I replied. Then he said to me, they, what are we talking about? There's two olive trees and one lampstand. They represent the two heavenly beings. Now, if you go to the New American Standard, and I pretty much always do when I start looking specifically at words, It says they represent two anointed ones. 
who stand in the court of the Lord of all the earth. Now, Revelation says that these two olive trees and two lampstands stand before the Lord of all the earth. Did you catch that? There's a, there's a connection. There's two, but there's only one lampstand, but there's two olive trees. So I'm starting, you're starting to be able to draw Zechariah and Revelation together a little bit. Is this a reference to the two witnesses in Revelation? Now, in the time of Zechariah, this reference, and by the way, I have had the, the chance to, to study the book of Zechariah in detail. In the time of Zechariah, this particular reference that I just read to you was to the high priest Joshua and the governor Zerubbabel. Say that three times real fast. Zerubbabel. Who were doing what? What, were, what was Joshua and Zerubbabel doing? They were rebuilding the Jerusalem temple that had been destroyed. They'd been gone for 70 years. And now they're coming back out of Babylon to rebuild the Jerusalem temple. Who? Joshua and Zerubbabel. Now, if you read the whole context of Zechariah, that those two lampstands specifically are referring to these two guys. Stay with me. What's interesting to me is what God says about this governor named Zerubbabel and the power that God has given him to complete his earthly assignment. Is this a shadow of the future? When you learn to read Scripture this way, many times in the Old Testament, you will see a person who is real person, but he's a shadow of something coming after him. Moses. Is Moses a real person? Yeah, he's a real person. Moses is the deliverer, but he's not the deliverer. He's a shadow of the deliverer that's going to come and break the bondage of sin and lead everyone to the promised land, right? So you have to understand, many times in the scriptures, you'll see characters that don't fulfill the ultimate design of the scripture. They're just giving you a glimpse or a shadow, a preview of a future sign or future um, manifestation of God's truth. Zechariah 4, verse 6. Here's what God says to Zerubbabel, who's in Jerusalem after 70 years of Babylonian captivity to do what? Rebuild the Jerusalem temple. Then he said to me, this is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel, it is not by force and it is not by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Nothing, nothing, not even a mighty mountain will stand in Zerubbabel's way. It will become a level plain before him. And when Zerubbabel sets the final stone of the temple in place, the people will shout, May God bless it. May God bless it. Joshua and Zerubbabel, listen, here's where I'm going. They were unstoppable. That kind of matches Zerubbabel is unstoppable. That'd be a good song. If a mountain tries to stop them, the mountain will be laid flat. Two men in Jerusalem, unstoppable referred to as two olive trees unstoppable not by might they won't rebuild the temple by might or by power or by strength but what did he say but by my spirit says the lord john's revelation however is referring to two other unstoppable men I know for a fact that John's revelation is not talking about Zerubbabel and Joshua. He's talking about two other men that will also stand in Jerusalem as special witnesses for God, but this time during the tribulation. Nothing, listen church, you've got to understand, nothing, there is no power on earth that will stop them from completing the assigned task that's written down for them that we're reading tonight until they're done they cannot die until they're finished here we go verse 4 let's read 4 through 6 these two prophets 
are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They have power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. They have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. You don't want to mess with these two guys. These two prophets, these two olive trees, these two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth are unstoppable. Fire comes from their mouths upon the enemies of God who try to stop the plan of God. They can shut up the skies and stop the rain. They can turn rivers and oceans into blood. They can strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. So who are they? We can't read this and not come to the question, who are they? We don't know for sure, but the Bible gives us some interesting clues about their identity. So I want to say two things about that before we dive in. We don't know for sure. We don't know. So no matter what I tell you, there's a certain amount of guess in this. Some people would look at me, because I've had this happen, they would say, why do you spend time on it if you don't know for sure? And my answer is, because searching their identity, I learn more and more and more about who God is. That's why. It is the search that reveals to me endless treasures. I may not find the end treasure of these two guys. I, I think I've got a pretty good idea. But what I will find during the search will be more and more and more treasures that I wasn't even looking for. Let's start. Many or most believe that Elijah is one of them because of what the final Old Testament prophet Malachi revealed before the 400 years of biblical silence. I want to read to you the last two verses of the Old Testament before there's 400 years of silence and the New Testament begins. Do you think the last two verses of the Old Testament might be really significant because they bridge the silence until the New Testament opens. Malachi 4, 5. Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching, notice what he's going to do when he comes. He's going to preach before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. After that prophetic announcement from Malachi, the future generation of Jews were looking for what? Well, what do you think they'd be looking for? They're looking for Elijah, right? Everybody, after Malachi writes this down, starts Looking for Elijah. 400 years later, they didn't get Elijah. But you know who they got? John the Baptist. Not Elijah. Listen carefully. The Bible says that John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But he's not Elijah. So I'm going to ask you a question. If John the Baptist, after 400 years of silence, comes supernaturally born in the spirit and power of Elijah, but he's not Elijah, that makes Elijah a good candidate for being one of the two witnesses that will come before the day of the Lord preaching, right? And it also brings a question today. Is Elijah coming? Because if Elijah's one of the two witnesses, we're still waiting for the fulfillment of Malachi. He's going to come to preach in the future. So, let's go to the arrival of John the Baptist. Luke chapter 1. While Zechariah, who's the priestly father of John the Baptist, was in the sanctuary of the temple, 
An angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will, you will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or any other alcoholic drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. Whoa, that's a resume. Somebody go on top of that one. He's got the Holy Spirit before he's born. wonder what kicking in your mama's womb would feel like when he's got the Holy Spirit. And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. And he will be a man with the spirit and the power of Elijah. That's what the angel's telling Zechariah. He will prepare the people for what? The coming of the Lord. What did Malachi say was going to happen? That's what Elijah's supposed to do, right? And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. That's what Malachi said Elijah's going to do. And he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Did you notice that the angel's words match the 400-year-old prophecy of Malachi? He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. He will come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He will come before the Messiah. When John came and grew up, the people asked him, <laughs> who are you? This was one strange dude. He dressed funny, he ate funny, he looked funny, he talked funny. He did not fit in the normal Jewish culture. That ought to tell you a whole lot. Verse 19. This was John's testimony. When the Jewish leaders sent priests and temple assistants from Jerusalem to ask John, who are you? He came right out and said, I am not the Messiah. So let's check that one off the list. If everybody looked at John the Baptist and thinking, oh, you're the Jewish Messiah, you're the deliverer, right? Nope, check it off. No, I am not the Messiah. Well then, who are you? They asked, are you? Listen, you think they're not waiting for Elijah? You think they didn't read Malachi? Are you Elijah? You think they didn't think, well, you fit the profile. Are you Elijah? No. No. He's got the Holy Spirit. He's not going to lie. No. Are you the prophet we were expecting? No. No. John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, but John was not Elijah, which means what? Church, Elijah's still coming. Is he one of the two witnesses? I believe more than likely, yeah. I could be wrong, don't know. Maybe. Do you remember what the Jews said to Jesus when he was on the cross? One last clue. Jesus is on the cross. Six hours. Matthew 27. Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. You want more? Here it comes. Elijah's still coming, and you probably don't want to be here when he arrives. Elijah was miraculously taken up into heaven. So will the two witnesses be. Elijah called down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel. So will the two witnesses. He's already got the resume for it. Elijah stopped the rain from falling. Remember, he went into King Ahab and said, it won't rain no more until I say so. That's what the two witnesses are going to do. Do you know how long the drought was in Elijah and King Ahab's days? <laughs> Three and a half years. You can't make this up. The same as it will be with the two witnesses in the tribulation. 1260 days. Pretty good chance that Elijah is coming again and he will be one of the two witnesses. Do you want to be here when he comes? Anybody? Anybody? Going once, going twice. Nope. So, what about the other one? 
I don't know for sure, so don't go out of here mad at me because you were hoping it was somebody else. Maybe you said you voted for Enoch. And I'm going to tell you I didn't vote for Enoch. The Bible gives us hints. Many have suggested that Enoch is the other one because Enoch, like Elijah, did not experience death. Just like you know, Enoch got a rapture. Elijah got a rapture. So it's Enoch and Elijah. Enoch was raptured. He was caught up to be with the Lord before the flood of Noah's day. It's possible that I voted wrong, that the second witness is Enoch, but I'm going to tell you, I believe it's Moses. And I'm going to tell you why. It would be wrong for me to vote for Moses and not tell you why. Because of what happened at the transfiguration and what happened in Egypt. Matthew 17. First, I want to make sure everybody understands. Jesus takes his closest friends to a separate location. Nobody else is with him. His inner circle only. And he, when you, when you hear the word transfiguration, he, a man, took on his heavenly appearance. And you needed sunglasses. He became as white as looking at the sun. And who's with him? Okay? Six days later, Matthew 17, six days later, Jesus took Peter and his two brothers, James and John, and he led them to a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light, and suddenly two guys are there. Moses and Elijah appeared and they began talking with Jesus. Who's standing with Jesus as his glory is revealed? As his glory, not just standing with Jesus, as his glory is revealed. Moses and Elijah. Now, there's something I want to say about Moses that's not in your notes. It was years ago when I was studying uh, the Old Testament. I spent three years in detail study of the Old Testament. It was when God really opened my eyes to the Scripture. It was after I spent three years pouring through the Old Testament. And I remember several times I would get to that Scripture where Moses is on Mount Pisgah, and God says, look down and you can see these two million people following Elijah, and they're going to the Promised Land, and you ain't going. And I would sit there with my Bible I would cry. I would literally weep. This man had given his entire life for this bunch of misfits. And he's not going. And then I read the Gospel of Matthew. And he's standing next to Jesus. And somebody tell me where he's standing. He's in the promised land. He did go. He did go. He didn't go in the flesh. No, he didn't. But the next time you see Moses in the Bible, after he dies on Mount Pisgah, waving to Joshua, should have been me, Joshua. He's standing next to Jesus, and Jesus is glowing white. And he's talking to Jesus, and there's Elijah. Whoa, you tell me God's not faithful. God's faithful. Moses did what in Egypt? So is that why you think it was Moses? No, no, I'm just getting started. Moses turned water into blood in Egypt. The two witnesses are going to turn water into blood. We have a record that Elijah and Enoch were raptured. But what about Moses' body? He done, that's not on his resume, doesn't Enoch's got one vote over Moses in that category. But what about Moses' body on Mount Pisgah? Well, let me read it to you. Deuteronomy 34, verse 5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, just as the Lord had said. And there's nobody with him. By the way, nobody with him. He walked up there by himself. You go with Moses, you're not going in the promised land, right? So he alone goes up there with God. The Lord buried him. 
Now, how would you like to have that funeral service? Moses dies by himself. The Lord buried him in the valley of Beth Peor in Moab, but to this day, no one knows the exact place. Did God, and just conjecture, okay? Did God preserve Moses' body so that it might be restored in the tribulation as one of the two witnesses? He didn't get the rapture of Enoch or the rapture of Elijah, but he got a burial service that was pretty spectacular. Jude in the New Testament gives another clue about Moses' body. Jude 1.9. But even Michael, one of the mightiest of the angels, did not dare accuse the devil of blasphemy, but, in, but he simply said, the Lord rebuke you. When, when was this little battle between Michael and Satan going on? This took place when Michael was arguing with the devil about what? Moses' body. So there's something, I don't know what it is, there's something significant about the body of Moses. Moses represents what? The law. If you look at the, 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 the Bible, Moses is the foundation of the law that God gave Israel. So where does Elijah fit? He's the prophets. Moses represents the law. Elijah reps, represents the prophets. And to whom is the main focus of evangelism during the tribulation? Moses to the Jews represents the law. Elijah to the Jews represents the prophets. And to whom is the evangelistic outreach focused on in the tribulation? It's not Gentiles. It's the Jewish people. The law and the prophets. The law is Moses, prophets is Elijah. Listen to how Jesus describes these two. Luke 16. Until John the Baptist, the law of Moses and the message of the prophets were your guides. Until when? Until John the Baptist. You had the law and the prophets. But now the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone's eager to get in. But that doesn't mean that the law has lost its force. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the smallest point of God's law to be overturned. Now, now with all of that background, what is the message and the work of the two witnesses during the dreadful three and a half years? Which is really the main point tonight. Not who they are. What are they going to do? Why are they here? That's what I really want to know. It really won't matter whether it's Enoch or Moses or two people. We don't even know who they are. It doesn't matter. Does it matter? No. What are they going to do? Why are they coming? At what stage of mankind? What's their function? Okay, now let's get into that. Revelation, and by the way, it's in the tribulation, right? The world's a mess. Verse 3, 11 verse 3. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will be clothed in burlap and will prophesy during those 1260 days. These two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They have power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. And they have the power to turn rivers and oceans into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. And when they complete their testimony... Why are they here? They got to tell the world something from God. And when they complete their testimony, and when they complete, you can't mess with them until they're done. But when they complete their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit will declare war on them, and he, the beast, will conquer them, the two witnesses, and he, the beast, will kill them. And their bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem, the city that is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, the city where their Lord was crucified. They are witnesses. Don't read over the word. They are witnesses of Jesus. And they will complete their testimony of Jesus. I don't know what that testimony is. I don't know. I don't know if it's a new word or it's the gospel or some of both. I don't know. But I can tell you this. They're going to say it. 
and nobody's going to stop them. And they will be hated for doing it. This is when it gets interesting. Two supernatural beings that can do supernatural worldwide events by opening their mouth and everybody's going to look at them and hate their guts. Why? This is during the tribulation. Where's the church? Church is gone. Who's left? Unbelievers. They hate these guys. They are hated for their message. What's their message? They're given a testimony. They're delivering to man the word of God. They stand in the presence of God. They preach the word of God. And the world, filled with darkness, hates them, despises them. You might say, well, it's because they make it not rain. Right? They make it not rain. You'd hate them too if it made it not rain. Or would you? The beast will come out of the bottomless pit and kill them. But not until they've completed their assignment. Not until they've completed their testimony. Not until they've said what must be said upon the earth. This reference in chapter 11 is the first of 36. Listen, 36 references to the beast in the book of Revelation. He is a prominent character. This is not the first event or the beginning of influence on the earth because he's been working behind the scenes ever since the rapture of the church. But he's coming out into public at this stage. Who is the beast that comes out of the bottomless pit to kill these two witnesses? Who is he? We read it a little while ago. Do you know who? he is the man of lawlessness? referred to in 2 Thessalonians by the Apostle Paul. The one that cannot be revealed until the one who holds him back is taken out of the way. Well, he's loose when this happens. He is a man. I want you to understand something. He is not the dragon. The dragon is Satan himself. He is the beast. He is a man whose spirit of Satan enters. He is possessed by a demon, by a spirit of Satan. A man. He would look like a regular guy, but he will have Satan on the inside of him. Satan is the dragon in the Revelation. Next week, we're going to talk about the dragon. I'll just tell you, next week, you'll find the foundation of darkness in Revelation. Satan. He's the one behind the Antichrist. He's the one behind the false prophet. He's the one behind the tribulation. He's the cause of the tribulation. He's the cause of the fall of man. He's the dragon. At the midpoint of the tribulation, three and a half years into it, 1260 days, the beast will break the treaty with Israel. Listen carefully. You want to know, where, is that in Revelation? No, that's in the book of Daniel. But Daniel says that at the midpoint of the tribulation, three and a half years into the seven-year tribulation, the beast, this, this person who is going to eventually kill the two witnesses, will have signed an agreement of peace with Israel which he will break. The agreement of peace with Israel will bring about the rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple. And you might ask, how do you know that? Because the peace agreement says that animal sacrifices will, be, will restart. And the Jews cannot have animal sacrifices unless there's a temple. They will not sacrifice animals outside the Jewish temple. So for the beast, three and a half years into the tribulation, to stop the animal sacrifices that had started... They would have had to have began. They would have had to have had a temple. So if you wonder why so many prophecy people say the Jerusalem temple has to be rebuilt, it's because Daniel says that Israel, the Jews, will enter into a peace agreement with the Antichrist, and three and a half years later, he will break the agreement, stop the animal sacrifices, walk into the Jerusalem temple, stand in front of the world, and say what? I am God. You know, Daniel, excuse me, Jesus quotes that scripture of Daniel. Do you know that? Jesus quotes. 
Daniel's 586 years before Christ. And Jesus quotes him. That ought to validate what Daniel said. And you know what happens? The world will celebrate the beast for killing the two witnesses. I want you, here, here comes the reality of the tribulation. At the midpoint of the tribulation, let me put it all together again, because this is when it gets complicated. At the midpoint of the tribulation, the beast will break the treaty with Israel and assassinate the two witnesses. And the world will celebrate the beast for doing so. And then the beast will display the dead bodies of the two witnesses in the streets of Jerusalem for everybody to look at. Why would he do that? Because everybody hates them. They hate them. Verse 8. And their bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem. Their dead bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem, the city that is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, the city where the Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, three dead corpses laying out on the sidewalk for three and a half days, all people, all tribes, all languages, all nations will stare at their dead corpses. I guess it'll be on CNN. And no one will be allowed to bury them. And the, all the people who belong to this world, that's all you need to know right there. You, you belong to where? They belong to this world. Well, at that stage, who's the world belong to? Satan. You belong to this world, and this world belongs to Satan, you belong to Satan. And all the people who belong to this world will gloat over them and give presents to each other. Did, did you just hear that? They're going to celebrate these corpses rotting on the sidewalk by exchanging gifts. I wonder what you'd write on the card. I don't know. To celebrate the death of the two prophets who had tormented them. Dr. David Jeremiah writes this in his book. This is the only mention of any kind of rejoicing on earth during the entire tribulation period. You know, I had never thought about that. You read all the revelation during the tribulation. It's the only time anybody's happy. And why are they happy? The beast has killed the two witnesses. Now, another writer says this. Now comes the real revelation of the hearts of man. You want to know what's inside man without God? Before I read it, look, look around the room. Everybody look around. You know what? Yeah, I'm talking about me. I'm talking about you. You know what's inside the heart of man outside of Christ? Absolute dark. No, not me. I'm a good guy. You're wrong. Without Christ, there is only darkness. There is nothing the human heart will not do. Nothing. Outside Christ. Let me prove it to you. This guy's writing. Now comes the real revelation of the heart of man. Glee. Horrid, insane, inhuman, hellish, ghoulish glee. A regular Christmas time of hell ensues. What? They're giving gifts to each other because they've murdered the two witnesses. But in the midst of their celebration, something happens. Something happens. The breath of life comes into this lifeless body of the two witnesses, and the whole world is going to watch it happen. So in the middle of their big party, <gasps> they're going to breathe. Verse 11, and after three and a half days, God breathed life into those two dead corpses. And they stood up. And notice what happens to their party. Terror struck all who were staring at them. And then a loud voice from heaven called to the two prophets, come up here. And they rose to heaven in a cloud as, they, as their enemies watched rapture, part two. Two miracles will occur for all the world to see. Number one, the breath of life will enter these dead corpses. Number two, these two dead corpses are going to stand up and the Lord's going to take them up while everybody watches. I wonder what will happen to the Christmas time celebration in that instant. I wonder if anyone will realize that there is only one source of the breath of life at that moment. I've always said that the resurrection changes everything. 
and it will change everything on that day. The beast, the Antichrist, listen, he deceives people, but he cannot replicate this miracle. He can't do it. Because neither the beast nor Satan can give life. The breath of life enters these two witnesses. And Satan can't go and fake that because he cannot give life. It is more than likely that this resurrection and rapture of the two witnesses will occur some three and a half years after the rapture of the church. The Bible says that the rapture of the church will happen in a moment, in a flash, in the twinkling, the blink of an eye at the last trumpet. I suppose this church rapture event will happen too quickly for anyone to watch. Have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered that if the Bible says, and it does, that it'll happen, the rapture of the church will happen in the blink of an eye. Well, that's faster than you can see. So will unbelievers see believers poof? I don't think so. I don't think it's visible to unbelievers. Why? Let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Let me reveal a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It'll happen in a moment. It'll happen in a blink of an eye. In fact, if you look at me and my eyes blink, you can't, you can't measure a blink. Not with the naked eye. You can't measure. It's going to happen that fast. But the rapture of these two witnesses is different. How many of you caught that? I want to show a fundamental difference. When the church is raptured, it will happen in the flash, in the blink of an eye. It will be that people can't see it. It's so fast. In fact, I often wonder, people left behind, where'd they all go? What's going to be the answer to the question? Where'd they all go? I don't care. I'm just glad they're gone. Or aliens. Aliens. Aliens, maybe. But the rapture of these two witnesses is different. Did you notice? It's fully visible. It's watched by the world. Their celebration is going to turn to terror. Their three-and-a-half-day celebration is going to be followed by three-and-a-half years of horror as the second half of the tribulation begins. Listen to the very next verse describe what follows the rapture of the two witnesses. Next verse, verse 13. At the same time, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. 7,000 people died in that earthquake, and everyone else was terrified and gave glory to God in heaven. Now, listen, that's optimistic until you read the rest of the story. Let me make something very clear here regarding verse 13. It says, everything, everyone else was terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. What? I don't believe this is repentance. No, no. This is not people repenting and turning to Christ for salvation. But this is a temporary state of terror that is absent of repentance and true faith. I describe it like what happened on 9-11 when all the churches filled up until the terror ended. That's not repentance. Do you want to be here when all this happens? Do you want to see the revealing of the Antichrist, the two witnesses? Do you want to be in the tribulation? Will there be some that turn to Christ during the tribulation? Yeah, I think so. Can I be real honest with you right now? If this message, if tonight's message, what you hear and hear on a normal Sunday doesn't affect you today, it's highly unlikely it would change you then. You would think that everyone on earth, here's what I, when I read that story that I just read to you, you would think everyone on earth would fall on their face in repentance during the tribulation, wouldn't you? They just watched these two dead witnesses get breath and get raptured. You think everybody would be falling down? Jesus, 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 right? You'd be wrong. And therein lies the mystery of mankind. Let me prove it to you. Revelation 9, 17. And in my vision I saw the horse. I saw the horses and the riders sitting on them. The riders wore armor that was fiery red and dark blue and yellow. The horse had head like lions and fire and smoke and burning sulfur billowed from their mouths. And one-third of all the people on earth were killed by these three plagues. All right, let's get the scale. In this event, one-third of humanity is, is killed by the judgment of God. One-third of human humanity. 
by the fire and the smoke and the burning sulfur that came from the mouths of the horses. Their power was in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails had heads like snakes and the power to injure people. But the people who did not die, listen, listen, the people who survived, the, one, the two-thirds, I guess, but the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. I don't get it. They continued to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, wood, idols that can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their witchcraft or their sexual immorality or of their thefts. Twice in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws them. Again, if the message of the gospel of Christ doesn't affect you today, it's unlikely it would affect you then. I don't know why. It's just true. Can a person's... Let me, let me kind of wrap this up. I know I'm running over. Let me ask you a question, because this is really important. Can a person's heart become so hard that it can no longer hear the Holy Spirit's voice? Yes. Does that mean the Holy Spirit's not speaking? No, the Holy Spirit speaks until you stop breathing. But when you reject the Holy Spirit so long, so many times, and your heart becomes more and more and more and more and more and more hard, the Holy Spirit speaks, you can't hear him. You're lost. You can't recover. You can't recover. The offer's there. You can't hear it. That's what's happening. That's what I'm reading. Hebrews 2.1. So we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard or we might drift away from it. For this message God delivered through angels has always stood firm and, very, and every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was punished. So what makes us think, church age, this is church age stuff, what makes us think that we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself and then delivered to us by those who heard him speak. What makes you think you'll survive? I wonder if this rapture of the two witnesses will be the largest event in human history, bigger than the Super Bowl. The whole world's going to watch it. Are you a witness? How big will the rapture be? You ever wonder? How many people will go to church their whole life and miss the rapture? Do you know that you know that you know? This is not a game. Did you hear what comes after the rapture of the two witnesses? An earthquake, but after that. Verse 14. The second terror is past, but look, the third terror is coming quickly. Why would a person live one day without the blood of Christ that sets you free from these future horrors? You know the answer. Nobody likes to say it out loud, and I've got to where I enjoy it. You don't believe. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but they'd have everlasting life. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the grace and mercy that has called us to open our ears and our hearts. You opened our eyes, you pulled back the veil, you showed us the gospel, you gave us a resurrection from the grave, you gave us your word, you gave us preachers, you gave us the Holy Spirit, you've given us life. We worship you. Now, Lord, send us out with this good news, unashamed, without apology. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.